Good morning, church. It is good to be with you all this morning. I had the opportunity to uh, attend a conference in Cincinnati last week, and um, I had the chance to fly. And so I'm, I'm not usually somebody who gets anxiety about flying, but since we've had kids, we had our first son in December uh, 12, 10 of 08, uh, 12, 9 of 08. So um, since 2008, for whatever reason, it seems like with each passing year, I've become more and more anxious about flying, and my best guess is that each time we had a child, I had more to lose. When you're in an airplane, it feels like you're out of, kind of out of control. I certainly didn't have any control over the airplane. And so this was uh, probably one of the most anxiety-laden airplane flights I've ever been on. Here, here was the situation. We fly from Cincinnati uh, to Dallas-Fort Worth. After we land, about 30 minutes later, some really severe storms blow through the DFW area. So we wait for the storms to pass, but the storms are moving from west to east. And I'm doing the math and mapping the path in my head, and I'm thinking, we've got to go either around or above, or Lord have mercy, right through the storm. And as I'm analyzing this, and our flight's delayed, finally we leave the Dallas-Fort Worth airport at like 11 o'clock, and we taxi down the runway, we're like 45th in line on the runway, so we're in the, in the airplane forever, and then right as we kind of get ready to take off, it starts to rain again. And so we get into the air, and it's pitch black outside of the windows of the airplane. It's almost midnight at this point. And the closer we get to Monroe, West Monroe, the worse it starts to rain. And so on the ends of the wings are these little flashing lights that they turn on at night, which I think are like headlights to alert other planes that you're in the area. So that was kind of freaky. But every time this light would flash, I'm looking out the window, and when it would flash, it illuminates the sky around the plane, and I could see this torrential downpour that was horizontal based on our speed. And so the closer we got to the storms, the more the turbulence started to overtake the plane, and so we're bouncing around, and I'm looking out the window, and every time this light flashes every five seconds, I'm seeing all this rain, and I notice that there's a pain that starts to... Uh, uh, manifest itself in my wrists. And so I like look down thinking, what's going on with this pain in my wrist? And my hands are like vice gripped onto the armrests of the seat. And so I was helpless against their power. I could not pry my hand off those armrests for any reason. And so I, I started to get really anxious. I really actually did. And a light comes on at the front of the plane. And I thought, oh man, you know, it's the stewardess, and she's about to tell us, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, please uh, fasten your seatbelts extra tight, and there's actually a four-point harness under your seat that I would like you to retrieve and fasten around your body. I got really scared, and the stewardess uh, actually didn't even get on the intercom. In the middle of this turbulent storm, this lady starts preparing the beverage cart. (laughs) And I look down at my hands again and I'm like, man, in this moment, she's way more courageous than I am. 
And so I thought about this sermon series we're getting ready to start called Faithful to the Finish out of Second Peter. And I thought, you know, Peter's a guy who really was faithful to the finish in, in much the same way this stewardess was faithful to her task to the finish of the flight. You follow the metaphor now. In the middle of the storm, when the rains are pouring down and the turbulence is anxiety-inducing, to say the least, she gets up and does what she's required and mandated to do in that moment. And so if we look at the life of Peter, I think we see that he's the kind of man with that same uh, bravery, with that same amount of courage that... Regardless of the context, there comes a point in his life where he cultivates and has developed through surrender to the Holy Spirit a faithfulness that he demonstrates consistently to the time his life is nearing its end. And Second Peter is one of the latest written books in the New Testament. It's also the last writing of Peter that we have record of. And we're going to get into Second Peter. Turn in your Bible, if you would, to Second Peter Starting in chapter 1, I'm going to read the first verse here. I want you to remember as we're working through this lesson this morning that the thesis of what we're going to talk about today, what Peter intended to impress upon his audience is, is what our focus will be right now. And that is this, that, that walking and behaving God's way will transform our world. Walking and behaving God's way transforms our world. And when we are in the will of God, when we are living God's way, that affords us a certain benefit or certain benefits as we live our lives. So let's get into the text. Second Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 1. The thesis this morning is that God's way transforms our world. We're going to be talking about God's way. The Bible says this, Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ... To those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours, grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. God's way, the first thing we need to, we need to note here in, that, in, in terms of how walking God's way and living God's way transforms our world is that God's way minimizes our failures. God's way minimizes our failures. Let's look really quickly at the history of the life of Peter. We see in John chapter 18 and verse 10, when Jesus is betrayed by Judas in the garden, that Peter pulls a sword as the high priests and the uh, Roman detachment come to capture him. He pulls his sword, and in John 18.10, Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and strikes the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Now, at first glance, this seems like almost a brave, courageous act. But what we see in the very next chapter is Peter denying the Lord Jesus Christ not once, not twice, but three times. So I don't think this is bravery or courage. I think this is arrogance and fear manifested in the behavior of Peter. Because directly following, he denied knowing Jesus. I think after he denied knowing Jesus, he really felt the weight of the reality of his own failure. I'd like to remind you of Luke 22 and verse 31. Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired you, but I have prayed for you. Jesus is saying, there's coming a time, Peter, where the enemy is going to come against you and you are going to be in a battle that is stronger than you think. 
and more difficult than you can probably withstand. I've prayed for you and I've gone to God on your behalf. After Peter denies Jesus three times, I believe when we get to heaven and ask him, what was that like after you denied Christ? He says, you know, he'll say to us, you know what? Jesus told me that that's what was going to happen. I still lacked the integrity to be faithful in that moment. And I think he feels the shame and guilt and sadness associated with failure. We see later in Scripture that Mary and Martha are headed to the tomb. They've prepared some spices and are planning on anointing the body of the Lord Jesus. In Mark chapter 16 and verse 7, when they get to the tomb, the angel of the Lord is there and he says, Go, tell the disciples that Jesus is written. Then he mentions one disciple specifically by name. He says, hey, tell Peter. God in his wisdom knew where Peter was at post-failure. And wanted the message of Jesus' resurrection to be shared with Peter specifically and first. So what happens after Peter hears the news? We get the rest of that story in Luke chapter 24 and verse 12. Peter gets up and runs to the tomb. Why did he run? Because the weight of his guilt and shame as a result of his failure compelled him to see if Jesus had arisen. Peter gets up and runs to the tomb. Bending over, he sees the strips of linen lying by themselves. And he went away wondering to himself what happened. For our friend Peter, it didn't take many days before his faith was renewed. He had seen Jesus in resurrected form and began one of the most powerful preaching and missionary ministries in the history of the world. If you pick up that story in Acts chapter 2, you'd see through a sermon Peter delivered, thousands came to know Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are speaking boldly. And in verse 13, when the people saw the courage, the boldness, the brevity of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. So what happens when a man whose life could easily be characterized as a life filled with failure, really starts to live faithfully. His failures of the past become minimized. That's the first and main point from from this section of Scripture, that living God's way minimizes our failures. In Acts chapter 4, verse 13, these guys see the courage of Peter and John And they realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men. I'm going to give you guys a little bit of Greek. And what you're going to learn after I give you this Greek word is that you know more Greek than you think you do. You actually do. Here's the the translation here. When the men who are seeing Peter and John speak realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, that word for ordinary is the Greek word idiotes. Idiotes. Now, if you had to guess, if you were a guessing man or woman, what would you guess? The word idiotes, we would translate today. Don't say it out loud, we're in church. But you get my drift. It's not that Peter, all of a sudden, after his faithfulness, had some capacity capacity to speak eloquently or to never, ever make a mistake again. Matter of fact, the audience to whom he's speaking in Acts chapter 4, after his transformation and after his faithful living really starts to manifest itself, would say, man, this guy looks like an idiotes. I don't know why I can only say that with a Spanish accent. But no matter how hard I try, it keeps coming out, idiotes, hombre, this guy, this guy's an idiotes, man. 
But what happens with Peter, man, he starts to live a faithful life. And he finds that living faithfully God's way minimizes his past failures. Why is that all possible? Because of the precious faith he received from the Lord Jesus Christ. If we'll allow allow the faith that God has given us to manifest itself in our lives, though we might walk around sounding like idiotes, in God's eyes we'll become powerful ministers for the kingdom. This is how Peter inherits what I'm calling a peaceful fortune. And a peaceful fortune in the kingdom of God means moving from failure to favored. That's what I'm meaning here. A peaceful fortune that you inherit in God's kingdom means moving from failure to favored. Peter was an arrogant, sin-sick, lying, cheating, deceitful man that, like I said, ended up having one of the most powerful preaching and missionary ministries the world has ever known. And he was a man just like you and just like me. But in the Lord Jesus Christ, our past failures don't matter as much as the reality that through our faithfulness, we become favored. Let's pick up Second Peter chapter 1, verse, thir- verse 3. The Bible says this. This is Peter talking to his audience. Now, this is his last will and testament. He says, guys, remember his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness mutual affection and to mutual affection love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting they have been cleansed from their past sins. Walking God's way minimizes our failures. It also magnifies our faithfulness. Second Peter chapter 1 and verse, thir- verse 3 is one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. Because it speaks directly to those of us who look at the man we see in the mirror in the morning. And at some level think, this guy is not up to the task today. It speaks to those of us who are maybe single moms or single dads that wake up on a Saturday morning realizing for 24 hours I've got the responsibility of my whole family and I've got to find a way to make it through this day. Or for the man or woman who's just a few days into recovery and feels like they don't have the strength to really finish the journey they've started. Or for the newly married couple or for the couple who's been married for decades to find ways to keep passion and romance and spontaneity in their marriage. It's for all those people who look at those situations and think, I don't know that I have what it takes. And every time I hear somebody mention that, I think Second Peter 1, 3. His divine power has given you not some things you need to stay sober. Not some things you need to have a great marriage. Not some things you need to really grow and develop your children in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. His divine power has given you everything you need. Can I get a witness this morning? Praise God. Everything you need, He's given you. 
That's how walking God's way magnifies our faithfulness. What have we done to deserve this? This is what's so beautiful. Nothing. I want to turn your mind to 2 Samuel chapter 9. This is one of my favorite illustrations of this reality, of God having given us everything and us having done nothing to merit it. So I'm going to give you a little history as you're turning to 2 Samuel chapter 9. The king in Israel in 2 Samuel chapter 9, at at the point in this story, is a man named David, King David. And David was actually anointed king by God's prophet Samuel while a man from another family unrelated to David named Saul was currently the king. So this would be like Trent is king and someone from another family gets anointed to be the next king while I'm still reigning. There's friction and tension in God's family. Saul, the man who was currently king, actually starts to hunt down David, probably something most of us would do if we felt that our livelihood were as threatened as his was at that moment. And David stays faithful through all the difficulty and hiding and turmoil and struggle. And Saul has a grandson that is still alive at the moment in time that that David is king. And so David hears that Saul's grandson, a man who is named Mephibosheth, is still living. And David tells his servants, hey, get, get Mephibosheth. Tell him to come into my, into my court. I want to talk to this guy. So we're picking up the story in 2 Samuel chapter 9, starting in verse 7. How did David handle dealing with his kind of former persecutor's grandson? This is David talking to Mephibosheth in 2 Samuel 9, 7. Don't be afraid, David said to him. For I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, who was a friend of David's that was Saul's son. I'll restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather. And you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed his head down low and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me. Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I've given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, Your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. What did Mephibosheth have to offer David? Nothing. If you read the context, Mephibosheth was actually disabled. In the culture they lived, that would have been the lowest of the low. And still David says, hey! Even though there's nothing you have to offer me, even though there's nothing you have that I need, I invite you to come and sit at my table and I'm going to bestow upon you everything that you need to sustain a life as though you were literally one of my sons. Church, that's the same thing God does to us through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, you sir or you ma'am, anybody under the sound of my voice who feels inadequate, like you don't measure up, like you don't have what it takes, like you can't keep going. He's saying, hey, I want you to come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Just come to me and I'll give you rest. You don't deserve it. You haven't done anything to earn it, but I love you. 
And take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for my yoke is easy. My burden is like, come and be like one of my sons. That's how God's given us everything we need to live a godly life. He provides for our needs. Importantly here in, in 2 Peter, we see the origin of corruption in the world. It's in verse 4. We've escaped corruption in the world caused by what? Caused by our evil desires. And through the transforming power of the same Spirit that resurrected the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, we can surrender our life and will to God and overcome those evil desires. Not only has God provided for our needs, He permits our effort. That second part of this second section says, Add to your faith. Church, whose responsibility is it to add these things to their faith? I want you to say this, mine, mine. Whose responsibility is it to add these things to their faith? It's your responsibility. God expects you to recognize He has welcomed you into His table. And that He's bestowed on you everything needed to live a godly life. And now He expects you to add to your faith goodness and knowledge and self-control and perseverance and godliness and brotherly love and agape love. And so many of us are Sunday morning only pew warmers. And we sit here and we have these gifts given to us in jars of clay. Man, it doesn't make any sense by the world's standards. And then we go out there and act like we've been given nothing. Because we don't put any effort into doing what God's asked us to do. It's your responsibility, friend. You've been invited in the same way David invited Mephibosheth. God demands and as begging to put some effort in here. If you'll do that, he'll preserve your effectiveness. What does Peter end up saying? If you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they'll keep you from being ineffective and unproductive. If you feel ineffective or unproductive in your faith, right here is the solution. If your life seems to be stagnant or plateaued, then you've got to start adding these qualities to your faith. Moving forward in uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, I'm going to pick up verse 10 here. The Bible says this. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. If you receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 12. So I'll always remind you of these things, even though you know them, and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it's right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I'll make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. The last thing I want to mention here is that God's way maximizes our focus. Our focus in life should be making, our, making every effort to confirm our calling an election. In other words, God's given you these things and He's called you into service in His kingdom. Now make every effort to live out that calling day to day. Not only is He asking you to confirm your calling, Peter's trying to admonish you to call to mind your resources. I had a professor in college that consistently said, Repetition is your friend. He probably got it from right here in 2 Peter. What's Peter say? I'm always going to remind you of these things. Verse 12, verse 13. It's right to refresh your memory. Why? Because you stink at remembering God's truth. 
Paul says we're all, it's so easy to be like a man who looks at himself in a mirror and then turns away and forgets what manner of man he is. You need to regularly come to church, feast on God's Word, pray, fellowship with the brethren, and get reminded of these truths. That's how God works. You've got the resources everyone needed to live a godly life. Call those to mind and use them. The last thing I want to say is to concentrate on your legacy. This is kind of, remember, this is Peter's sort of last will and testament. This is his statement to the churches for the rest of time. And at this moment, what he's telling you is, I'm close to the end of my life. And I'm considering now everything I've done over the, over the course of my life. And what he's telling you is, I hope that I've lived in such a way that when you remember me, you remember God's truth. And that you remember the gospel. That's first importance. That's most important in everything we do. We're gospel-centered. That's the legacy that Peter intends to leave. It should be the legacy that we leave. One of the coolest legacies in my life has been the marriage of my mom's mom and dad, my nan and pop. This month, they celebrated their 59th wedding anniversary. And it's just sad because that's such a rarity in our culture. And I think probably the second legacy that's been most important to me is my mom and dad's marriage. They've been married 23 years. And just seeing them deal with me and my addiction and my sin and my brothers. My dad married my mom uh, when she had three boys who were, I just put this as mildly as I can, not the best behaved. And my mom was a big stud. She made it through some really difficult years. And she and my dad have an awesome marriage and they survived some dark times. And those are legacies worth leaving. I'm using marriage here as kind of the background of this slide because uh, in our culture, that's ultimately where I think we find faithfulness most easily demonstrated. And I do want to take a second to comment on the Supreme Court's ruling this last week. In terms of leaving a legacy, this is what I would say. I prayed about this. I've asked God, Lord, just give me the words. What, what is your church? What do your people need to hear? This is what I want you to, to walk away with remembering this morning. I think, friends, that we're all kind of technically born this way. I want to say that again. I think we're all technically born this way. And what I mean by that is I think we're all born with the same compulsion and tendency to sin. I think we all have that sin nature deep within us. And the tendency and compulsion in life is to go the way our sin nature compels us. But let me tell you when love really wins. Are you ready? Let me tell you when love really wins. When a life can really truly resist the evil, sin-sick, natural tendencies within that life and be reconciled to God through the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that, that is a legacy that's worth leaving. That's a legacy that's really worth leaving. So I'm asking you to do a self-assessment, then I'm going to pray and give you a chance to respond. What kind of a legacy are you leaving? Are you going the way you were born into your own sinful tendencies? Or are you resisting your evil desires because you've been reconciled to the Lord God through the love of Jesus Christ, His Son? Let's pray. Lord, we love You so much. You're such a gracious and loving Father. 
And despite our failures and our mess-ups and our mistakes, we can still become favored. And that's a miracle. You've given us everything we need, and you've just asked us simply to put it into practice. So I pray that every person under the sound of my voice and all those who are watching online today would resist going with the way that they were born into the natural tendency to sin and instead be reconciled to you through the love of your son Jesus demonstrated on a cross and thus filled with the spirit that allows us to resist the way we were born. God, bless this church. Bless each person on the sound of my voice. I ask these things in the name of your precious son, Jesus. Amen.